Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and the effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Chad Orzel will join us to discuss timekeeping. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, what is time? What is the history of timekeeping? Joining us today to discuss this issue is Professor Chad Orzel. Dr. Orzel is an associate professor in the Department of Physics and Astronomy at Union College in Schenectady, New York, where he's been on the faculty since 2001. He's a physicist, professor, and blogger, and author of three previous books, including How to Teach Quantum Physics to Your Dog, How to Teach Relativity to Your Dog, and Eureka, Discovering Your Inner Scientist. He has penned the new book, A Brief History of Timekeeping, The Science of Marking Time from Stonehenge to Atomic Clocks. Dr. Orzel, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you for having me on. Glad to have you back on the program, and certainly a great book you've put together here, A Brief History of Timekeeping. You really look at the history of what it was to keep time. I'm curious why you decided to put this book together. So the origin of it is actually a friend who's an English professor. I was teaching a course on time and literature and asked me to do a guest lecture, Time in Science. And so I did, I used this, you know, hawking joke title, A Brief History of Timekeeping, and sort of ran through a bunch of different kinds of, of clocks. And at the end of that, I said, yeah, you know, there's probably something here. And I actually turned it into a course that I ran a couple of times at Union. It's not a majors course. It's a sort of introduction to college research course that we have in our curriculum. And so I had students from from all over campus. And this is a really good topic for that because it connects to a huge range of science from really basic stuff to really fundamental, complicated esoteric physics. And it also brings in a lot of history and politics and, and social aspects. So there's a little bit of something for something for the engineering majors to get hold of, something for the arts majors to get hold of. Kind of everybody, everybody has something to work with. Runs the gamut from Stonehenge to atomic clocks, tracing the history of timekeeping. Easy to mark a beginning to where timekeeping started. Yeah, it's easy to identify a certain class of very ancient, very monumental timekeepers, right? Because there are these ancient monuments, like it mentions Stonehenge on the the book cover, but uh, even older is the the Newgrange Passage Tomb, which is in Ireland. Uh, It's outside of Dublin. And this is 5,200 years old and still functions as a clock in that it's massive artificial hill with a narrow passageway going to a central chamber. And that passageway is aligned in just such a way that the rising sun on the winter solstice casts a ray all the way down this chamber into the the center. And that is the only light that you get in the center all year. And so this is clearly a device that's been deliberately constructed so as to mark the winter solstice. And, you know, that's a kind of a clock that that ticks once a year, right? Once a year, somebody on the inside at sunrise would say, okay, today's the day. And that's really important information for an agrarian society, right? You're, you're dependent on the natural world for everything, 
for plants and animals and, and stuff for food. So, you know, you need to know, okay, now we've got to the point where the days are as short as they're going to get, and it's going to get better from here. It's time to start thinking about spring and moving forward. So, you know, those are, are these, you know, monumental landmark things around. And that's a really easy thing to identify as a starting point for, for talking about the, the history and science of this. How do we start whittling that down then into sort of more and more fine-grained ways of marking off the passage of time? Yeah, the earliest technology for subdividing things further than that are one thing you can do is you can make sundials, right, which is just a vertical object that casts a shadow and the angle of the shadow tells you what time it is. And so people use those. Those are extremely simple. There's also a very ancient tradition of making water clocks, which is just the simplest kind of water clock is just a, a container with a hole in the bottom. You fill it with water and it drains out slowly. And when it's done, then you know that this amount of time has passed and you can repeat that over and over. And there's a tomb inscription in Egypt from about 1500 BCE, a guy bragging that he had invented a water clock that would allow you to keep accurate time through the night all year round. And we have a really good idea what this looks like because a couple hundred years later, there's an example of this found uh, in Karnak in Egypt. And it's basically a thing that looks like kind of like a flower pot. It's a tapered container with a hole in the bottom and markings on the inside showing water levels. And so you fill it to some level and then there's lines that indicate in each of the months what is the hour that corresponds to that line. And so this was a device for marking hours through the night when the sun isn't visible, so you can't use a sundial. Of course, everyone I'm sure then is familiar with classic hourglass with sand. Yeah, and hourglass with sand is another one. And that's the, in some ways, the most surprising of the timekeeping technologies that I, that I researched for this, because you would think that would be something incredibly ancient, right? Like, you know, the Egyptians knew how to make glass, right? And, you know, and they're surrounded by sand. So you'd think they would have this. But actually, those are shockingly recent. The hourglass is actually about the same age as mechanical clocks. The first unambiguous reference to an hourglass that we have is in a, a fresco that's painted in Siena, Italy around 1330. And the first mechanical clocks show up sometime in the 1200s. So, you know, these things are roughly contemporary. Uh, sand glasses just didn't seem to be used until probably sometime in the 1200s, around the same time that people started making mechanical clocks. How do we get to that point of those mechanical clocks? Seems like such a big jump. So the mechanical clocks are probably originate as a variation on a type of water clock. So the simplest kind of water clock is you make a container with a hole in it and you let the water drain out. A slightly more elegant thing is to have an empty container and a source of water that fills it at a constant rate. And so if you have a constant flow rate of water coming into this, this container, then you can do something like you can put a float in it. And, and that float can rise up as the water level increases and, it, and pushes up. And then you can, you know, put projection off the, the stick coming off the float that can, you know, trip spring-loaded alarms, right? And, and various things that, that can turn wheels and move an indicator or sound an alarm and things like that. People start making these very elaborate water clocks based on this sort of principle. Probably what happened to get to purely mechanical clocks is somebody said, you know, wait a minute, like we're 
using this water clock to trigger a thing where, you know, a falling weight spins something and that spinning, you know, makes a noise and turns gears and does things. You know, why don't we just set up something where the we just use the falling weight and regulate that in some way? So probably what happened is somebody was tinkering around with a water clock and said, you know, we could get rid of the water part of this and make a timekeeper that's just mechanical. It winds up being a lot tougher. We started getting into things like trying to define exactly what is time. Does anybody what we're actually trying to measure here? Yeah, it's a hard question, right? Personally, I'm an experimental physicist by training and inclination. So I'm very comfortable just saying, look, time is the thing that you measure with a clock. And a clock is just the thing that ticks, right? A clock is something that does some regular repeated action that you can count and use that to mark the elapsed time. And so, you know, there's all different variations. All of them have this in common. They're, they're, all of the different timekeeping technologies have something that repeats a motion in a regular way. And we're just counting repetitions of that. So that enables you to measure elapsed time. You know, time in a more abstract sense is really, you get very philosophical very quickly. But one of the fascinating things about it is that it's, it's fundamentally kind of arbitrary and a matter of convention. Right. And our definitions of time all kind of ultimately come back to everybody's going to agree that we're going to start keeping time now and we're going to mark forward from this point. And we're just all going to agree on that time as sort of a conventional thing. And that's kind of arbitrariness inherent in the whole scheme. How have our standards of what we define as a particular unit of time changed? There's a fascinating bootstrapping process that goes on here, right? So we start off, you know, all the way back in, you know, pre-written history, we have time based on the sun, right? You're based on the position of the sun, the angle of a shadow cast by a sundial, things like that. And we subdivide the day there. And then all the sub subsequent evolutions of time. So we have sort of an idea of day is divided into 24 hours. We have a thing that's about the length of an hour. You know, we can subdivide that into minutes and seconds. The units that we use are every time we upgrade our standard for the reference for time, we keep sort of the same durations of our previous units. And so that leads to this situation where the modern definition of time is that one second is uh, 9,192,631,770 oscillations of the light that's absorbed or emitted as cesium atoms move between two particular energy levels. That All of those weird digits, right? Like, you know, you would look at that and you say, like, couldn't we have called it 10, you know, and just made the second a little longer? But you know, we're trying to match the previous definition of the second with this new and improved standard. You know, the numbers that, that are in timekeeping also have this like echoes of history, right? So, you know, why is a, a day uh, divided into 12 hours or 24 hours or, you know, 12 hours a day, 12 hours a night? Well, it's because it's probably connected to the fact that there are roughly 12 full moons in a year. Right. And so that's a natural span to sort of chop up the year. It's a little more than 12. It's like 12 and a half. But if you're counting full moons, that's another really obvious thing in the sky. You go through most years, 12 of them before you get back to about where you started. Every now and then you need to stick in the 13th. 
So 12 is a number that shows up a lot in timekeeping. The other one that, that's a relic of, of past systems is 60, which comes from the Babylonians. Uh, they're, they're some of the earliest really good astronomers, and they had a, a base 60 counting system. So they used 60 kind of like we use 10. So they subdivided things into groups of, of 60 things. And that's how they recorded all of their astronomical observations. And everybody else just sort of copied from them because they had really good data. And so to keep using it, we said, okay, we're just going to, an hour is 60 minutes. All right, that's, we're, we're just going to go with that. And, you know, a circle is 360 degrees because we're cribbing from the ba Babylonians here. Such a strange system that we have that we've inherited from the ancient past. And there have been proposals for things like metric time to simplify things. Do you think any of that can have traction given that all this vetted in way? Yeah, it, it's been tried. The real attempt at it was in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Henri Poincaré, the French polymath, was deeply involved in this attempt to decimalize time. And I said, like, look, you know, 12 is kind of a weird number. How about we, everybody's gone to metric except the Americans, you know, so, you know, tens and hundreds and things. Why don't we, let's redefine time and say that, you know, there's uh, 10 hours in a day and there's a hundred minutes in an, in an hour and then everything gets more sensible. And it was just, everybody's like, yeah, but there's too many clocks and watches that, that are already out there that exist. And so we're just, it's just too much hassle to change it. Which is kind of how we ended up with Greenwich as the, the prime meridian. Uh, there was a big argument at the time they were settling on time zones and, and definitions of longitude as to where this zero degrees longitude line should go. In Greenwich, where the Royal Observatory of Britain is, or in Paris, where the Paris Observatory is, or someplace else, you know, Washington, D.C., whatever. What ended up settling it is that something like 75% of the world's shipping used maps that were printed in Britain that already had the zero of longitude going through Greenwich. And people were just like, well, look, you know, it'd be really expensive to replace all those. So let's just keep it where it is. Is there anything particularly surprising to you as you look back at the history of how time is kept? I mentioned earlier the thi the single thing that was probably the most surprising to me was was learning how recent sand glasses are. One of the coolest things that I, I learned about in the course of doing this as a course and then doing this as a uh, the book is I had to dig into Mayan astronomy a bit for this to, to look at their calendar, which, you know, caused a huge fuss about a, a decade ago where some people got onto the idea that December uh, 2012, that, you know, the Mayan calendar predicted the world would end in December of, of 2012. And, you know, digging into that and why it was wrong was really fascinating. And they have a really complicated calendar system that's based on a cycle that's completely unlike anything in the rest of the world. And it's a really interesting illustration of the fact that, you know, we think that our Gregorian calendar, right, is 12 months with fixed lengths and so on. And we interact with some other major cultures that are also kind of close to that, right? You know, the, the Jewish calendar is 12 months most years. Sometimes it's 13 months. It's a little more synced up with the moon than ours, but it's a similar idea. The Chinese calendar, right, the, you know, the Lunar New Year just happened on the, the traditional Chinese calendar. That's based on the moon, but again, is doing this thing where they have months that are based on the moon and they, they add a month every now and then to keep in sync with the seasons. Very similar ideas to what's going on. And that's mostly because, you know, everything in Eurasia, all of those cultures are in contact with each other. 
the Mayan calendar is just bizarre. Right? It's, it seems incredibly weird to us because it's based on just a fundamentally different set of societal priorities. We're not sure exactly why, but they tracked this cycle of 260 days. And it's really hard to figure out, you know, what is 260 day lo days long? But this was deeply ingrained into their, their calendar. And it's fascinating to see that and to realize that, you know, something that we take is very fundamental, like tracking the length of a year as 365 and a bit days and, and trying to, you know, have a calendar that syncs up with that really, really well. They valued something completely different. And this, it's really fascinating to see underscores that arbitrary nature of what we agree upon as being the standard. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the real problem is the Spanish were unfortunately very thorough about destroying everything they could get their hands on. And so we only have these incredibly fragmentary records of what the Maya calendar was. And nobody knows, you know, why 260 days? What did that really symbolize to them? We know how the system worked, but we don't know what it meant to them. And that's uh, that's a you know real tragedy. What do you see then as the future of timekeeping? So the you know the clocks that we have now the the cesium atomic clocks with the you know nine billion one hundred ninety two million et cetera oscillations per second you know the best cesium clocks are good to a level where you'd need to run one continuously for close to a billion years before it would gain or lose a single second and to most people that seems like well that's plenty good we're done right uh, timekeeping is over. But actually, people in atomic physics are working very hard on kind of next generation clocks that would be a factor of 100 or 1,000 times more accurate than the cesium standards. And the thing to, that you want to do with those is start to look at exotic physics. So you can do things like take an array of clocks and put them you know, out in space and have them all connected together, broadcasting time to each other. And if a gravitational wave passes through, we've detected gravitational waves by stretching and compressing space. We see that with LIGO. The same thing should happen to time. The clock should speed up and slow down a little bit as the gravitational wave goes by. And you would be able to see that as kind of a, a disturbance rippling through a, a network of these clocks. They would need to be, you know, a thousand times better than the best cesium clocks. But that's a thing that we can do. We can imagine doing that. And there's other kinds of uh, you can look for changes in the fundamental constants of nature. Again, you need clocks that are better than the best official clocks that we have. But people are pushing this this frontier forward all the time because there's there's all kinds of fascinating things you can do if you can measure time to that level of precision. We were just talking with Dr. Chad Orzel. He is the author of the new book, A Brief History of Timekeeping, The Science of Marking Time from Stonehenge to Atomic Clocks. Dr. Orzel, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thanks for having me on. This was fun. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.